Aloha and welcome to Native Stories. Native Stories exists to share the voices of those connected to the land. Aloha mai kako. You are listening to Native Stories Podcast. Mahalo for listening in. Um, my name is Nohea and I'm the founder of Native Stories. Today we are with Heoli um, and we will be talking about her experience here. This is another episode of the Mauna series I'm substituting for Nanelo. We're here live on Moko Keawe or Hawaii Island at Pu'uhonua o Pu'uhuluhulu, holding space in solidarity with the Kia'i and protectors of Mauna Awakea in the peaceful protests against a 30-meter telescope that has been granted access to build on Mauna Kea, the largest mountain in the world from seafloor to summit, surpassing Everest. Okay, so introduce yourself. Aloha mai kako. My name is Jamaica Heoli Malikalani Osorio. Um, and I'm from uh, Oahu, Palolo Valley, born and raised. And now I live um, on the slopes of Olamana and Kailua. So what is your connection to this place? Do you have any family um, direct descendants to Mauna Kea? Uh, so my... My father's actually from Hawaii Island. He was born and raised in Hilo and Keokaha. Um, and all of my kupuna either lived, most of them either lived in Hilo, Keokaha, or up the Hamakua coast. So I come from probably like eight or nine generations of Hawaiians raised in the shadow of this mountain. Um, and most of them still, most of my dad's family still lives on this island. Okay. So um, you are a professor at UH. And what classes do you teach? Yeah, so I'm an assistant professor of Native Hawaiian and Indigenous politics. Um, and usually I teach classes on Native Hawaiian politics. But this semester I'm teaching an introductory class, 100 level, on Indigenous politics, intro class to get, um, mostly freshmen, some upperclassmen. What would you learn in that class? That sounds interesting, actually. So in this class, it's kind of a survey course. We're covering um, Indigenous people in Hawaii across the Pacific and on Turtle Island, um, Native North America. So we look at the way our identities are political, our land and our languages are political, um, our representation being political. So the semester is really broken down by those different sub-subjects, which are kind of fun. Okay, so you're known for your poetry, and uh, we want to know how did um, how did you find your voice in poetry? I was really lucky that I, I grew up in um, in a really musical family. So my father, Jonathan K. Kamakvihole Osorio, is a longtime Hawaiian musician. And so we grew up kind of on stage singing with him. So I was always really comfortable on stage. And my dad's also a writer. And I don't know if he would describe himself as a poet, but he was always writing poetry and writing music. So that was always a part of my upbringing. And then when I was in high school, I was like an avid athlete. And when I was 16, I had to stop playing sports because I had I was diagnosed with arthritis and I couldn't really move for a little while while we were trying to figure out what was wrong. Uh, and a friend of mine started getting into spoken word and like invited me to join him. And at first I thought it was really stupid, but I went and kind of fell in love. And I had all this free time now because I wasn't playing sports. And I was really angry and sad because I wasn't playing sports. So it kind of like fueled that passion. And then at some point I realized that poetry would be a really awesome way to talk about Hawaii and to kind of, I kind of grew up in an activist family. So it made sense to me that 
if I did poetry, someone would give me a microphone and I could mm -hmm. kind of say whatever I wanted. Mm -hmm. um, and so I started writing poems about Hawaii and trying to get people to pay attention to what was going on here at home. So you said you're a family's activist family. What is... Uh, give us examples of that. Yeah, so like my first memory growing up is was attending the Onipa'a March in 1993, January 17th, um, and attending with my father. I think like 15,000 people went to that march in 93. Um, but my dad kind of just always participated in kind of the sovereign the sovereignty movement. Uh, they put me in Hawaiian immersion school growing up. So we were a part of that project to revitalize Hawaiian language. And then, of course, my dad's also a professor of Hawaiian studies. So it was just kind of everywhere and everything. Um, and I think a lot of people assume that since my dad is who he is, that he kind of like indoctrinated us into, mm -hmm. into this. Um, but really, I feel like he just gave us an opportunity to learn um, and like took me to all kinds of events to like see what was going on and let me ask questions and let me come to my own opinions about it, which was pretty powerful as I think a young, as a young person growing up in Hawaii. So where did you go to school? So I went to Kekula Kaiapuni o Anuenue from first grade through the end of sixth grade, which is a Hawaiian immersion school in Pololo Valley. Um, and then I kept getting really angry that Kamehameha kept rejecting me. So I told my mom, I'm like, I'm done with this. I'm going to go learn how to read and write in English. So I went to Kaimaki Middle School for two years. Ah. Yeah. Um, which I don't necessarily regret. I regret the reasons why I left. Uh, because I thought not getting into Kamehameha meant that like I wasn't smart. And so I had to go somewhere else to be smart, which I think is BS now, obviously. Um and then I tried out again for Kamehameha for high school. And when I tried out, I submitted a letter saying that, like, Paul, he would be so ashamed of them for rejecting all these Hawaiians who are, like, learning their language and investing in their culture. And then they let me in. So for ninth <laughs> through 12th grade, I went to Kamehameha schools on, at Kapalama. Um, Who's I, the favorite teacher? Oh, man. I, I have quite a few. My favorite teacher at Kamehameha is probably um, Michael Puleloa. He was my junior... Um, English teacher, honors Hawaii Pacific literature. Yeah, he was probably my favorite Kamehameha teacher. And then my favorite teacher at Anorinue is a woman named Leinani Makeka Whitaker, who actually lives on this island now. And she it was really cool. She was my teacher from second through fourth grade. And she stood in the Manawahine line with us a few wow. weeks back. So that was like really powerful to yeah. look over and see someone who like helped raise me. Right, right. Yeah. Cool. So. Uh, you know, some people don't know everything about what's going on with your poetry. Um, and I guess there's, um, you've been all around the world. You've performed for Obama. Uh, and then after high school, where did you go? After high school, I went to Stanford University for four years. Um, Why? Because <laughs> they accepted me and they had really good financial aid. Wow. Um, it's actually the only university I applied to. I applied early. Um, and when I got in, they sent me my financial aid package and it was cheaper than going to UH. Wow. So I didn't apply anywhere else. What did um, you study there? Comparative studies and race and ethnicity, which is like a fancy way of saying like, ethnic yeah, studies. Um, yeah. So I studied like racism and, uh, Yeah. <laughs> I studied the same stuff I talk about today, but from like an American context. Uh -huh. Yeah. And so then you came back to... Um, well, then after I finished at Stanford, I went to NYU, New York University, for one year to get my master's. And um, 
that was the worst financial decision of my life, but I learned a lot. And then I came back. California versus New York. Oh my God. I'm never going. Like New York is fun to visit. I actually went back to New York for the first time this past November. Um, and it was really awesome to like go and, and see the city and not be on food stamps and like go like out to eat and go see a play. Um, but I, when I was living in New York, I was legit on food stamps, had no money, wow. lived in the hood. It wasn't very much fun. Um, so California, definitely over New York, but Hawaii over everything. Yeah. For sure. Everything. Yeah. Um, so then after all that, I moved home in 2013, started my PhD in the English department at UH Manoa, and then finished that in 2018, and then started as a professor. What did you do your dissertation? Yeah, I wrote my dissertation on pilina, which is the Hawaiian word for relationships. I study Hawaiian relationships pre-Christianity like Christianity and how that, how the imposition of certain kinds of relationships by Christianity, whether it be like marriage or heteronormativity really actually structures our relationship to land too. Um, and so the way we've been removed from our land has been coupled with the way we've been removed from our relationships with each other. And I study that through old Hawaiian stories like Hiyaka Ikapoli Pele. Can you give us an example? An example. So, um, so in particular, one pilina I study is called Aikane. And Aikane are same-sex relationships um, that aren't always sexual, but can be and you can have many ikane and also a kane which some people translate to a husband but it's really just a male intimate partner all at the same time um which makes things really complicated but what's really interesting about hawaiian relationships in these stories is the way that um when you take on an intimate partner how you take on all their intimate partners too and you become accountable to them so it sets up a different way of thinking about community and society and ohana um, another probably example that a lot more people can relate to is the language around family. So in Hawaiian, there's no real word for auntie and uncle. Like we say anake and anakala, but those are transliterations. Uh, you would just call them makua. So anyone in the generation above you is makua. Anyone two generations above that is kupuna. And anyone in your generation is hoahano, which means that like you are parented by all the family, family members above you. So you think about kind of the, a lot of us who grew up in smaller neighborhoods who like anyone's parents could, you know, scold you, could discipline you, could mm -hmm. feed you. Mm -hmm. That models a lot more of our understanding of like Hawaiian families versus the nuclear family where you have two parents and they're the only ones who raise you. Um, and you treat your siblings different than you treat your cousins, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So it makes okay. for a different way of seeing like responsibility of each other. So... How is that connected to land? Hmm. So when one of the ways that patriarchy is like mapped in the family and like creating this nuclear household and the male father kind of leading the nuclear household, um, on the one hand, that's supposed to model kind of exactly what's happening in the government, right? This male dominated society, but also the nuclear family impacts land in that it forces us all to kind of get our own houses and participate in the market in a certain way. So it fuels capitalism, um, in a new way. Um, the other way that it kind of relates to land is when you look at the stories and we read these like really intimate passages about 
people making love in these stories, they don't actually ever talk about their bodies. They talk about their lands meeting each other. So when Pele sleeps with Lohiel, and Pele is from Puna, and Lohiel is from Haena, it says that Lohiel witnesses all the beauties of Puna, and it names like the winds and the rains of those places. And so when we read the stories in this way, we learn that like we learn how to be good lovers and intimate and care for each other from our relationship to land. So when those things kind of degrade, it kind of makes sense that a lot of our relationships are unhealthy and all messed up. Wow. Um, Boom moment right now. (laughs) So that's what my dissertation's about. All of that. Can I read it? Um, Yeah. Well, I'm actually turning... I'm going to be publishing the dissertation as a book with University of Minnesota. Um, And I'm writing a new chapter. I'm writing the final chapter. So... The dissertation's getting revised for book form, and then I'm adding a chapter about all this and the pilina you forge through movement building. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's dive right into how you got involved um, here in this yeah. movement, right? How did that start? At what point did you know you should come up here? Yeah, so I had been paying attention to Mauna Kea for a while. I wasn't up here in 2014 and 2015 when the last stands happened, mostly just because I was making excuses for being busy, and um, but I had always regretted that decision. And so I think I kind of made the decision when the last people were arrested in 2015 that the next time there was a stand that I would be there. And I tried to really stay present in the issue and uh, stay involved from Oahu. And then... We came up here July 12th, so a few days before that, we had an organizing meeting on Oahu. We had been meeting regularly the months leading up to it, Um, but they basically said, like, the call is going to come out in a few days, and they're probably going to ask people to stay for a few weeks, for a couple weeks, so um, get ready. And Mm -hmm. so that was when I knew, like, okay, like, I started packing my bags, Mm -hmm. um, getting ready to come up here. Getting your cold gear. Yeah, getting my cold gear, (laughs) calling around. (laughs) So... Um, the cattle guard, you were locked there with your, um, new girlfriend. Yeah. We can say that on, on your podcast. Yeah. Official. Facebook official. (laughs) Yeah. The cattle guard. Um, so we arrived on, on July 12th and that evening and people arrived not knowing what we were going to do. We were just told, come to this meeting and we'll give you further instructions. And a lot of that had to do with not wanting you know, the state or any of the enforcement people to know what our plan was before we did the plan. And it was there in Kauai High that Ko'okai told us, okay, we're going to go camp at Pu'uhulu. Um, and there were about 200 people in that meeting. And he said, who's ready to go right now? And maybe 30 people raised their hands. So that was kind of gnarly. So about 30 of us came here in the dark of night. Um, we didn't set up any tents. He's like, we're not setting up any structures, not even tents. Like, I slept out in the parking lot on a cot. It was freezing. Um, But that was a Friday. And then, I guess, we'd had a bunch of meetings between then and Sunday. And Sunday night, we gathered all the people who were ready to be arrested. So we have three teams on the Mauna. Uh, Team Red are people who are ready to be arrested at any time. And they're, like, they're down to stand on the front lines. They're down to get pepper sprayed. Like, they understand what's coming for them. And they're ready. Team Yellow are folks who can get arrested but aren't necessarily, like, trying to get arrested. And then Team Green are people who, like, cannot at all get arrested because, for whatever reason, maybe they have warrants out for their arrest or they're in a custody battle or they work for the government. Um, So we had a meeting of the Team Reds. 
they're like, okay, there's going to be some actions tomorrow. Um, one team is already full and that's actually the team. The cattle guard team was already full. Um, but there's one spot open on another team and everyone wanted to be on it. And so I went over and talked to the guy. I was like, Hey, I want to be on this team. He's like, okay. And as I was walking over to join that team, Noi Goodyear Kaupua pulled me into their circle and said, Hey, Hey, Oli, do you want to do a hard blockade, which is a blockade where you use equipment, hmm. which is what we were doing. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. So she pulled me into the circle. Um, and that's when Kale Kokeo told me that Molia and I would be partnered up. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, cool. I don't know you. So, oh, so that's my question. Did, did we know each yeah. other? Yeah. Um, we both knew of each other. Malia, um, is kind of infamous or famous in the activist world as one of the few Hawaiians who went to Standing Rock and she was at Standing Rock for like six, seven months oh, wow. or five or six months. Um, and then she spent time fighting other pipelines in, in, uh, Minnesota. So she's like, I knew who she was and she knew who I was because of my poetry, but we had never, we weren't friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so you guys introduce yourselves on the, on the category? Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, we introduced ourselves <laughs> in the dark of night, like 10 PM before we went up to the t- And that's the crazy thing is they told us at around 10, this is what we were going to do. And then we had, we went up at like three. It's mm-hmm. not like, and I didn't really understand the plan until I was there and I saw the cattle guard. Because I don't know what a cattle guard is. They're yeah. like, we're going to go chain into a cattle guard. I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. And then I walk up there. I'm like, we're this? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Got it. Um, yeah. So, how, like, what time was that at? That was, started? like, at we walked up at, like, 3 in the morning. Yeah. You locked up. Yeah. Locked up at 3 in the morning. Okay. And then we were there, I think, till 2.30 in the afternoon the so, next day. So almost 12 hours. hours. Yeah. And, you know, Kalekoa said when we were meeting, he's like, you know what? If we hold them till 9 a.m., I'm going to be happy. I'm like, cool. I can 9 a.m.? No yeah. problem. Minor. Yeah. Yeah, it was a long day. <laughs> <laughs> it was a long day. Lots, Yeah. Lots of time to get to know each other. <laughs> <laughs> so I saw your dad playing music for you and the tears and I was crying why how did that impact you I mean obviously probably yeah. positive way yeah so my my relationship with my father has always revolved around music and Hawaiian language because we're the only two people in my family who speak Hawaiian so like for for us to be up here together was a really big deal for me that morning um, I don't know what the coverage was like, but the Kupuna had, had a line down at the bottom of the access road that morning. And so I don't think he knew until hours in that I was actually up on the cattle guard. Oh. Um, he was at the Kupuna. He was at the Kupuna. And so I, I guess at one point the Kupuna, I don't think they dispersed, but they, they got a little more loose and they sent my dad up to come see me. And he just asked me what we needed. And so I asked him, will you sing for me? And so someone brought him a guitar and he sang and, um, did he pick that song or did you? So the, f- the first song he sang was Pu'uva'ava'a. And I don't know if that went out on the, the live stream, but Pu'uva'ava'a is a song for the three majestic mountains of Hawaii. So Mauna Kea, Mauna Loa, and Hualalai. And that seemed really appropriate. Uh, and then he sang a song, um, he, I think most of the video that people saw, he sang a, that Beatles song, yeah, in my life for no one. And that was one of my favorite songs growing up to sing with him. So on the one hand, 
I asked him to sing for me because I knew he wanted to help. And I knew that's something he could do and make him feel like useful and helpful. But on the other hand, like whenever I've been in pain or been struggling, my dad has sung for me. When I got my alama'i, my tattoo on the inside of my leg, my dad sang for me. When I was in the hospital um, in high school um, after like getting surgery, my dad sang for me. So it's that's our relationship. And so to sing with him in that way, both for each other but for the lahui, was really, really meaningful. Yeah. I'll never forget it. Okay. How do I move on from that? So you guys won the day, basically. Yeah. Yeah, we did. Unchained. Uh, so we were under, what most people don't know is that we were under arrest from about 3.30 in the morning. They just couldn't get us out. So they placed us under arrest at about 3.30 in the morning when they found us. Um, and they couldn't figure out how to get us out. So we definitely won that. And by, they were, I think they were just waiting us out to see if we'd give up, right? Um, but at about 2, I don't know, I guess they got bored or... It was too late for them to bring up equipment. They were like, okay, you guys aren't under arrest anymore. We're worried about your safety. You can go. And so we unchained and we came down and I sprinted down the hill to go to the bathroom. (laughs) I was like, I think I have a UTI. Um, But yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, we won the day. Um, But then some really shady stuff happened. We came down and we were kind of emotionally messed up and physically messed up. And we came down with the understanding that no phys- nothing was going to get built that day. And I actually went up to hike up the pool because I needed some space. I was feeling really, like, overwhelmed. And when I came back down, I saw my people, like, gathering and making a line on the access route. I'm like, what the heck is going on? And we look up, and the Department of Transportation is building a gate. Um, yeah, I saw that. And we were like, what the F is happening? Um, and a lot of people don't know this, but that's how the Kupuna tent got established. Um, because we made a bunch of messed up stuff happen, happen, but the main part of the story is that we ended up telling them that, okay, you can have your checkpoint at the cattle guard, but we're going to do a checkpoint down here. Um, and that's how we took control of the bottom of the road and made that decision because we were negotiating with them and the Kupuna had a list of a few demands. Um, and they, they weren't very, they they were reasonable demands. One of them is that we wanted one car a day that could go up and do protocol. Um, I don't remember the other ones, but that was the main one. And they said no to all of our negotiate, all of our negotiations. Who's negotiating? The Kupuna were negotiating with DLNR. DLNR. Don't care. Okay. Yeah. And they said no to all of it. And so the Kupuna said, well then screw you. No one's getting through. Yeah. The, um, I saw the gate and I can't believe they took it down, though, as well. Yeah, like, we got them to take it down because... Um, they could not have. I didn't. I just didn't understand yeah, what they were trying to do. I, I mean, I don't remember now how we got oh. them to take it down. Okay. Um, all I know is that we got into a huge... We obviously got into a huge argument with them because it was a breach of trust, right? But this whole situation is a breach of trust. Right. Um, And I can say for myself, like, I was not in a good emotional state after laying down there for 12 hours and then to see them take over the cattle guard and then build something and then cop cars to go pass us. I was like, I was pretty messed up. Yeah, I was pretty messed up. So that was Monday. Yes, that was Monday. That was Monday. Um, So Monday, 
the plan was the Kupuna to get arrested Monday, but the, the cops just circumvented them because they didn't want to deal with them. Tuesday, we did the same thing. There was a Kupuna line. The cops showed up, did not want any part of it, right? They're scared of the Kupuna. I'm scared of the Kupuna. Right? You should be. <laughs> um, and then Wednesday, that was the day, the 17th. Um, that's when they finally had to arrest Kupuna. Yeah. Yeah. So the Wahine line. Yeah. What day was that? That was the same day. So um, Wednesday when they started taking the kupuna. Yeah. Um, There's supposed to be like 12 of them. But every time a kupuna got arrested, another one sat down. Um, which was really awesome because the police were prepared for 12 kupuna. They were not prepared for 35, 36 uh, kupuna. They weren't prepared to carry them. They weren't prepared to drive them off. Um, and so they were completely overwhelmed, which was great. And then, of course, the response from the community was everything that it should have been. Um, but as they were getting to the last number of kupuna, we decided that we were under the impression that women could only be carried away by other women. Other women. So we were like, we should do a Manawahine line. And so we started gathering people. We're like, okay, when the time comes, we're going to line up in front of the kupuna. And everyone was down. And we lined up. And honestly, I thought they were like... 20, 30 of us, but apparently there were like 100, 120, 130 wow. of us lined up. And then Kane lined up behind us. Yeah. Um, and I think we held that day there. Were, so that day, Docare was there, Honolulu Police Department, Maui Police, Hawaii Island Sheriffs, Hilo Police, and the National Guard. The National Guard didn't face us, they were out on the road, but there's like five enforcement agencies there, and we held them for three or four hours. There were, um, how many do you think, like, half as many police people there versus you guys? Oh, man. So, on the 17th, we probably had, because the cattle guard had already happened, we probably had, like, a thousand people here. Here. Yeah. Um, we definitely outnumbered the police. Yeah. But there were lots of them. They, they lined the entire access road, um, and then there were police facing us. So... There's was probably it, like a hundred. Yeah. Well, so parts of it were scary. Parts of it weren't. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of the cops facing us were crying. Like they were having a really hard time. I ended up having a conversation with one of them a couple days later. Um, but they brought out the sound cannon. And so that was kind of the... Oh, it came out. Yeah, the Hawaii, the Oahu guys, or the Maui guys, I can't remember which, brought out the sound cannon. But then... so And they were using it as a PA. But then the Hawaii Island Sheriff, he stood right in front of, between it and us. And he said, I promise you, they won't use this on you. And he stood in front of it for three hours. So that, like, that definitely made us feel safer. But the fact that they brought it out um, was kind of scary. Hmm. They had mace canisters, tear gas. They had these batons, these wooden batons that basically, like, scraped against the ground. They were so long. Um, so they definitely had, they were ready to use force. They were prepared, full riot gear. Um... And, you know, our people were chanting and singing and sometimes they were doing really kind of louder, like ikumawa or yelling kukia imauna. And when that would happen, usually that feels really great, but it would agitate the police officers. And I'm standing like right in the front of the line. I'm like, maybe not that chant. <laughs> um, but at the same time, even when you're kind of faced with that reality, I don't think I've ever felt more powerful than standing with those women. You know, I felt like yeah. we could have stopped a bulldozer. Yeah. Um, so 
how do you think this experience will uh, influence your teaching? It definitely already has. I was actually teaching a three-week summer course when all this stuff started going down. Um, and at first I felt really guilty because I missed the whole second week of classes to come up here and be on the cattle guard and stand in the Manawahine line. Um, but it changed what I thought a classroom was and could be. Mm. And what I was, and it changed what I thought I was capable of in terms of being a teacher. And we ended up bringing all 12 of my students wow. to the Mona and finishing the last week of class up here. Wow. So that like changed my life as a teacher. I think in seeing kind of giving my students the benefit of the doubt and the opportunity to just show up and surprise me. And, and they did amazingly. I was really proud of them. Um, so I've, what yeah. course is that? That was poli sci 301 Hawaii politics. And it was taught in partnership with native Hawaiian student services. So it was offered just to native Hawaiian incoming transfer students. Um, so it was great to just bring up Hawaiian students to the Mona and give them an opportunity to engage with the issue. Um, and then now we just started the first week of classes back in Honolulu. So I'm going back and forth and my class isn't really about Mauna Kea, but I'm seeing the way for me and for my students, since this is such, so much a part of our day to day, like experience, how even when we're talking about something else, they're relating it back to this issue. Um, which I think is good because it's making it relevant, right? The, the material is relevant to More them. More engaging. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They can see it. When we talk about the politics of who gets to define who's indigenous, they can see the issue in terms of DHHL and who has authority over this land. Yeah, it's no longer theory. Yeah, right? yeah, it's all, pra it's practical. Um, and so it's pushing me, not just, that's the other thing is like, not just to talk about these issues in theory, but how can I bring the practice to the students because they're ready for it and they want it. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's definitely training me to be a better teacher. Do you think that the experience here will actually create a new curriculum curriculum? It's, it already has. That's the cool part. So there are professors who are coming together digitally from UH Manoa who've already started like a folder of Mauna Kea resources and like a digital Mauna Kea syllabus. So people could teach a whole class on this issue. If you issue. want to put on Native Stories, just, you know, give and call. Yeah, exactly. We put on Native Stories. Serious. Yeah. No, but for real. So that's the thing is like, um, I've been really proud to be a part of the UH faculty right now because there's so much awesome organizing happening at UH and so many people trying to hold the university accountable to their role in this atrocity that, I mean, I, I just feel the like I'm surrounded by and mentors the and this, oh my God, the students are incredible. Yeah. First day of school, they started occupying Bachman Hall. Yeah. Um, so like I've been talking to my students and them about just holding all my classes there to hold space with them. But also for my students to see, like, okay, we're indigenous politics. Like, this is indigenous politics happening right now. Um, yeah, the curriculum's being transformed. What classes are you teaching here on the Mauna? On the Mauna, I just teach every... Whenever Presley has an, an opening <laughs> she really needs to fill, I'll usually teach a class on Hi'iaka and Pilina, or I'll, I'll teach poetry classes, like writing workshops. Mm. So I think I'm doing one tomorrow, and then probably another one on Monday, because it's Lulu's birthday. Yeah, there's a full curriculum that day, yeah? Was it mon Monday? Yeah, she's probably got, a f like, a full list yeah. of stuff happening Monday. Um, I mean, Presley... What Presley has done in six weeks at 
to create Pu'uhulu University is incredible. Um, and the labor she's put into it, hours and hours and hours. I think most of her day is just spent kind of uh, creating this curriculum and filling the spots. And what most people don't know about Presley is she's a curriculum nerd. So oh. um, I would, I'm not, I know I'm not the only one, but I know there are a lot of us who are like, we need to find a way for her to get credit for this so she can just get her PhD in education because she started a university. <laughs> she started a school, so she should get a you know, she a needs a lot, for it. a lot of credit yeah. for what she's doing. Yeah. And it, besides the, the ceremony, Pu'uhulu University and the ceremony are the only, um, completely content, constant things happening at the uh, Pu'uhonua since the beginning. Um, so they de- deserve a lot of credit in like maintaining kind of the rhythm, I think, um, and the per- keeping people on focus and purpose. So, um, how do you perceive this moment in time, um, will be perceived in the future? Yeah. Um, I think one of the reasons, there are a lot of reasons people have come out to support the Mauna. Um, but one of the reasons I think people understand that this is an incredible moment in history and that this issue, and I felt this way for a while now, and it's just gotten bigger and bigger. But this issue is what's going to characterize our generation in the same way that Ko'olave characterized my father's generation. Um, and I think people are going to look back and not just see the wastefulness of the fake state of Hawaii in terms of the way that they've dealt with the issue and, and the complete disregard for their own laws and even reason oftentimes. But they're going to look back and and... And see how powerful their people are and how powerful the people of Hawaii can be when we come together. And that we wield a, a real serious force um, that we could push in whatever direction we want. And I, I really hope that we're not just looking back in history to like this beautiful time where we all came together um, and then it stopped. But really look back and see, oh, that was another beginning to how we got here right now in whatever issue we're fighting then. Um, and I hope, unlike Koholave, we all get through it with our lives. Mm. Um, but I also know that there are people here who are willing to give their lives mm-hmm. for this mountain and for everything she represents. Um, and so I think if, if people haven't been here, uh, they should come and they should come witness it for themselves because their kids are going to ask them where they were. Um, when, you know, when people tried to build the TMT and, and they're not going to want to say they didn't come. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Haoli, for spending time with us and taking this interview and answering all the questions and being here on this Mauna and protecting it and your words of wisdom. And do you have any thoughts or want to say anything more? I just want to thank everyone who's listening in and trying to learn as much as about what's going on on the Mauna and form their own mana'o and let you all know that everyone is welcome here. Anyone with an open heart and an open mind is welcome here to, to see what's happening see our lahui growing um and i hope to see you on the mauna we hope we hope thank you for listening to us on native stories if you have a story you would like us to tell or want to sponsor future podcasts location story or walking tour please email us at info at nativestories.org